You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has done what he's needed to do up to this point to prepare his disciples. We're about five days away from the cross, and it says in verse 1, that now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now Jesus here is sending his disciples on an admittedly awkward mission. Uh, there they have to go into this village and find a donkey and a colt. And uh, first of all, it's interesting that Jesus would know that they would immediately find this donkey and colt. But then beyond that, they're supposed to simply take them, not ask for them. But if anybody came to them and said, hey, what are you doing? They were supposed to respond with the simple reply, The Lord needs them, and Jesus promised He will send them at once. Now, it's uh, possible that the owner of the donkey and the colt knew Jesus, knew who the Lord was, knew of His mission, and was interested in helping in this kind of way. But it's also wonderful for us to know that anything Jesus asks us to do, no matter how impossible it might seem at first glance, he will take care of the uh, results of that command and that commission. I think that far too often we argue with the Lord. He'll tell us something that he desires from and for our lives, and immediately our minds and our hearts and our words, our mouths are filled with arguments back to the Lord, telling him, why this isn't a good idea, why this will not be effective. And the Lord wants us to quietly obey his word. His command is his provision. Now, in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now this whole action of Jesus sitting on this donkey and colt was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9, from which Matthew, as he was prone to do in his gospel, uh, quoted. I believe additionally that this event where Jesus rides on this animal into Jerusalem, the people throwing down their clothes, throwing down palm branches, singing messianic psalms to Jesus. I believe that this was also the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel had received a prophecy from the Lord that basically dictated a 490-year period of time where God would deal with the nation of Israel. From the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the revealing of Messiah the Prince 
would be 483 years of that 490 year prophecy. One seven year period yet to be fulfilled. And I believe that from the command of King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, I mean, excuse me, the city, not the temple, that was a previous responsibility recorded in the book of Ezra, but to rebuild the city that from Artaxerxes' command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem 483 years later, this event occurs and Jesus rides into Jerusalem on schedule, keeping that divine appointment revealed to the nation. Of course, in verse uh, 5, the quotation from Zechariah, it's wonderful to think of this king. He says he's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, coming to you with humility, coming with lowliness, with gentleness. This is a word that Peter used in 1 Peter 3 verse 4 to describe a submissive wife, lowly, willing to follow, willing to come under. Jesus isn't riding here on this animal for the sake of glory, but in obedience to his father, he's being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now in verse 8, it says that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now this event caused quite a stir as Matthew records in verse 10. He says the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? It's, it's actually the word uh, stirred up is a Greek word where we get our word seismic. The city was rocked. The city quaked as Jesus came into it. But don't you love the song that they sang to Jesus from Psalm 118? They were quoting Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. The, the word Hosanna simply means save now. What an incredible prayer to pray to the Lord. A great prayer to memorize. There have been plenty of moments where I've cried out to the Lord and said, Hosanna, I'm in a little bit of trouble right now, Lord. I need a little bit of help. Lord, save now. And so the people sing, the people cry out to the Lord. Now, this is very climactic and in one sense is counterintuitive to what we know about Jesus. He is always telling people to be silent. He's always telling people not to broadcast the miracle that he's performed for them or the casting out of demons that he's performed for them. He's always uh, retreating from the crowd and going out into the wilderness. He's uh, unwilling to see people crown him as king. But yet here he rides on this animal into Jerusalem in the midst of this singing. And the question is, what in the world is Jesus doing? And some of these actions would be the kind of things that they would assume that the Messiah would perform. What would be his first act after they sing these messianic psalms to him? Well, it says in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple 
and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he said to them it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers well it's a fascinating thing Jesus going into the temple which is exactly where you would expect the Messiah to go for his first stop but instead of going there for worship and instead of going there to drive out the Roman contingent that was there guarding the Temple Mount as they would have expected him to do instead of calling down fire from heaven and driving out the uh, Roman guards Jesus instead drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons in other words Jesus was dealing with the nation of Israel and not dealing with the nation of Rome as they might have suspected now of course for clarity's sake we have to answer the question what's so bad about money changing and selling pigeons after all people from various countries Jews who had come to worship they couldn't offer uh, the money from their hometown they'd have to change their money out in order to offer the temple tax and if they traveled a long distance more than likely instead of bringing an animal to sacrifice they would purchase a dove or some kind of certified animal there on the temple mount in order to sacrifice to the Lord so what's so bad about the money changers and those who were selling pigeons and doves and other animals well what was going on behind the scenes was this huge racket designed to make an incredible profit for the religious leaders uh, the money change that was taking place charged exorbitant uh, exchange rates and these animals uh, were often you know people would bring their own animal and the religious leaders would say oh we're sorry uh, this one isn't good enough but you can buy one of our pre-approved dubs doves of course they're at a higher price than you might normally pay and what God had designed things like sacrificing doves or pigeons God had designed that so that people who were in poverty could still worship the Lord they were taking and turning into a profit-making business and so Jesus quoting from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 says it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it into a den of robbers it's important for us to see here the heart and the intention of God he wanted this place this temple to be a house of prayer now Matthew doesn't quote this portion of God's statement but he said a house of prayer for all nations the other Gospels record that portion but here the emphasis on the prayer they were a prayerless people they were not dependent upon the Lord not turning to the Lord not worshiping the Lord and Jesus rebukes it he's looking for our dependency our devotion he wants us to cry out to him to plead with him to worship him and instead of doing that they were going through the motions making a profit off of the people let none of our church service let none of our personal devotion be systematic and with a false motive let's have pure worship and praise flowing from our lives 
And the blind and the lame, verse 14, came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Now, they knew that these were messianic songs that people were singing to Jesus. They were in a roundabout way claiming that he was the Messiah. And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? And like I've said before, I love it when Jesus says that to the religious leaders. Have you never read? Have you never opened up the Bible? He says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. This is from Psalm 8, verse 2. And so Jesus says, listen, I mean, these people, they're worshiping me. This is praise. I'm not going to stop it. So verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. It was unsafe for Jesus to remain in Jerusalem. So he was at this point in this Passion Week, spending his nights in Bethany. Now in the morning, so we have the next day, verse 18, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, which of course gives us a little allusion to the humanity of Christ. He was hungry, like you and I would be hungry. And seeing, verse 19, a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, there are two really big lessons that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us as a result of this whole event and the subsequent conversation. Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree. He's hungry. Goes up to it, finds only leaves, no figs. And he curses the fig tree. Now, this is another thing that Jesus does here in this chapter that seems odd to us. He's not usually going around cursing parts of creation and stuff like that. But before we judge him and before we think, oh, Jesus, he's being so mean, cursing this fig tree think about what has just occurred jesus has gone into jerusalem as the messiah he has gone to the temple he had been there three years earlier driving out the money changers and the tax collectors and and the uh those who were selling animals he had driven them out three years previous he comes back three years later he goes into the temple I'm sure expecting and hoping for a little bit of fruit. Well, we know he was looking for fruit because he quoted from Isaiah and Jeremiah and said, you know, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer. That's the fruit that he was looking for, not figs, but the fruit of prayer. He didn't find it, so he cursed it. Here, Jesus does the same thing to the fig tree. He finds no fruit and he curses that fig tree, which is often a picture of, of the nation of Israel in Scripture. Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, the book of Joel. Uh, so Jesus here, I think, is giving us a picture 
of what he was doing to the nation of Israel, looking for fruit, found none, and cursed it. Now, I believe that a day is coming where the people of Israel will revive once again and bear fruit once again. I think even Paul alluded to this in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when he spoke of Israel and talked about the tree of Israel. And I think he was hinting at the reality that they would revive once again as a nation. And I think certainly millennially, we will watch the nation of Israel in prominence there and for all of eternity. But the second lesson here that Jesus is teaching is he, as the disciples say, how did the fig tree wither? Notice they didn't ask why, they asked how. Uh, they were more curious with the more basic lesson there, not the deeper meaning, but just the, hey, how did you do that kind of thing? And he gives them a lesson then about faith and says, you know, if you have faith, you could say to this mountain, be moved and it will be moved. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, we know enough to know that Jesus isn't giving a blank check version of prayer to anybody who wants to cry out to God and say, God, give me this, give me that. We aren't here to push God around. And I think even when we do that, we know in the back of our minds uh, that that we don't believe that God is really going to do that. That's not what he does. That's not who he is. He's a God who sacrifices in order to reach people. However, when we're able to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, when the chief desire of our hearts is for God to be revered and hallowed and worshipped, when we're in that good and great spot, guess what? When we have faith and we cry out to God with that heart behind us, we better fasten our seatbelt and get ready because God is going to answer those prayers. Whatever we ask in that vein, when we have faith, he says, you will receive. He says, don't doubt, don't doubt, but believe. I found a lot of times faith is what God will use to cultivate, uh, prayer is what God will use in my life to cultivate my faith. But a strong promise, at the very least to the disciples and by extension to us. Now when he entered, verse 23, the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So he comes back now and Instead of driving out, he begins to teach. And Jesus answered them as they questioned him about his authority. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So they claim to want to know the authority of Christ, but... Jesus doesn't want to answer them if they are dishonestly asking this question. If they're only trying to trap him, then he doesn't want to reveal himself. So they discuss Jesus's question that he asked in response. He says, you know, when John was baptizing, where did that come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Who, whose authority was John leaning on? If you answer me that, I'll tell you whose authority I'm leaning on. And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John 
was a prophet. It's amazing how shackled these men were by the court of public opinion. They just could not move, could not be, without thinking about man and what man would think. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. When they said, We do not know, they weren't, weren't being honest. They thought they knew. And what they thought was that he, he came from man, that John's message was not from God. And so Jesus says, well, hey, listen, if you're not going to be honest with me and open with me, I will not share with you where my authority comes from because you're not able to even be honest about where John the Baptist's authority has come from. But then he goes on and he continues to speak with them in mind. Verse 28, he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, The first. The first. So here we have another parable from Jesus. I told you previously that the fig tree in the Old Testament sometimes pointed to Israel. And here we have a vineyard, a master with two sons. He says to one son, go work in the vineyard. And his son responds and says, no, I don't want to. I will not. But afterward changed his mind and went. And then he went to his second son and said, go work in the vineyard. And he said, I'm going, I'll do it. And, and yet did not go which of the two did the will of the Father? Now, the vineyard in the Old Testament is also a picture, an excellent picture of the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 12, but especially Isaiah chapter 5. And so Jesus asked them, hey, who did the will of the Father? They said, well, the first. You know, it's one thing to say that you'll do it, but then to actually do it, even if you said you wouldn't, whoever actually acts out on it, they've done the will of the Father. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus points out, Listen, when John came along, there were tax collectors and prostitutes they had, with their lifestyle, said, no, we don't want to follow God. But they heard John's message, they repented, and they followed hard after the Lord from that day forward. The religious leaders, on the other hand, made it look as if they wanted to obey the Father, but inwardly they did whatever they darn well pleased. They were rebellious against the Lord. Hey, it's better to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, as James said in James 1, verse 22. Then Jesus has another parable for them. He's not finished. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. So now you have the vineyard idea again. When the season was uh, for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to him. 
Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So in this final parable of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus talks about a, a landowner who had a vineyard who uh, rented out his vineyard to some workers and expected to receive fruit. So he sent servants. The servants were not just re rejected or refused. They were actually in the parable. It's rather extreme. They were beaten. They were killed. They were stoned. And finally, he sent his son saying, they'll respect my son. But when they saw the son, they said, let's kill him and have his inheritance. Now, the picture from this vantage point, this side of the cross is very clear. God is the landowner. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. God sent servant after servant in the form of his prophets. But the religious leaders in Israel continually persecuted and rejected the prophetic message. Finally, the father sent his son. And the religious leaders would, with guilt on their hands, kill and be responsible for the death of the son. That's why Jesus said in verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What will he do to those tenants? He, it, it's so strange because in the parable, these tenants said, yeah, let's kill the son and we'll have his inheritance. What father in his right mind would give the inheritance of his son to the ones that had killed his son, to his son's murderers? It just wouldn't happen. It shows you the idiocy of these religious leaders and what they were thinking and how they felt. So Jesus is asking, what do you think he'll do to those tenants? Well, they said to him, verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. It's obvious here that these guys don't yet know that Jesus is speaking to them. He's rebuking them. He's giving them a chance, I think, to repent. Jesus said, verse 42, to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes from Psalm 118 and uh, about a stone that was the cornerstone, but rejected initially by the builders. There is a legend that when Solomon's temple was being built, they brought the cornerstone from the quarry and the builders looked at their paperwork and didn't know where this stone was supposed to go. So they tossed it to the side and the weeds grew up around it and all of that. And finally, it was time for the cornerstone to be laid. And the builders asked for it to be sent from the quarry. The quarry checked their records and said, we've sent it to you already. And they looked around and found this cornerstone that had previously been rejected. Now, we don't know if that's a true story or not, but it communicates well the idea that Jesus is communicating from Psalm 118 saying, listen, I am that cornerstone you are about to 
reject me. Therefore, I tell you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Speaking of the stumbling, breaking ministry of the gospel. You know, the church, Jesus is saying, these disciples of mine, Jesus is saying, you know, they're going to take the position of prominence now and they are going to bear fruit unto God. It's what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for prayer. He's looking for us to be evangelistic in nature. He's looking for fruit. And when the chief priests, verse 45, and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They finally caught on. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.